Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In his book, From Darwin to Derrida, Selfish Genes, Social Selves, and the Meanings of Life, evolutionary biologist David Haig explains how a physical world of matter in motion gave rise to a living world of purpose and meaning. Natural selection is a process without purpose, yet gives rise to purposeful beings who find meaning in the world. Haig proposes that the key to this is the origin of mutable texts that preserve a record of what has worked in the world. In other words, genes. These texts become the specifications for the intricate mechanisms of living beings. Haig draws on a wide range of sources to make his argument, from Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy to Immanuel Kant's critique of the power of judgment, to the work of Jacques Derrida, to the latest findings on gene transmission, duplication, and expression. Genes and their effects, he explains, are like eggs and chickens. Eggs exist for the sake of becoming chickens, and chickens for the sake of laying eggs. A gene's effects have a causal role in determining which genes are copied. The gene persists if its lineage has been consistently associated with survival and reproduction. Organisms can be understood as interpreters that link information from the environment to meaningful action in the environment. Meaning, Haig argues, is the output of a process of interpretation. There is a continuum from the very simplest forms of interpretation, like those found in single RNA molecules near the origins of life, to the most sophisticated, like those found in human beings. Life is interpretation, the use of information in choice. David Haig is George Putnam Professor of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. Because he's a theorist, his research is wide and varied, working on everything from maternal-fetal conflict in human pregnancy to the evolution of plant life cycles. He has a particular interest in genetic conflicts within individual organisms, as exemplified by genomic imprinting. He joins me today to talk about his latest book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by David Haig to talk about his new book, From Darwin to Derrida. Selfish Genes, Social Selves, and the Meanings of Life. David, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Okay, um, so I'm an Australian. You might tell from the accent. And as a teenager, I was an obsessive bird watcher. So I have a great love of the natural world. At school, I studied history and a bit of biology. And when I went to university, I just fell in love with evolutionary biology. And eventually, I'd become a a professor in evolutionary biology. But I've always maintained my um, love of history. Fantastic. So maybe next, tell us how you came to write this book in particular. So the book um, has, in one sense, been written over a period of about 30 years since it's based around 
a variety of philosophical pieces that I've written over that um, time. But the immediate um, stimulus to publishing the book was uh, the central chapter on um, a theory of meaning, uh, which I had submitted to a number of philosophical journals and had been um, rejected in no uncertain um, terms by the anonymous reviewers. And my friend Daniel Dennett, um, who was a great supporter of the work, said, why don't you put it together in a book? And so it was Dan's suggestion that I put my various um, philosophical writings together in book form. Um, I've uh, revised all the earlier bits. I've tried to make it somewhat a coherent whole and a continuous long argument. It was fun, um, not necessarily writing for um, scientific reviewers. It gave me the freedom to um, use much richer metaphors and figures of speech and to um, let my hair down a little. Mm, fantastic. So I think an important basis of understanding here is about genes themselves, how and why they function the way they do, and how this relates to the evolution of organisms over time. So can you explain this for the layman? So the way that I think of a gene is um, genes are the archival record, the, part, the record of past natural selection. So genes code for proteins. They do things in the, um, in the cell and then in organisms. And then what they do is subject to the judgment of the environment. They either survive or they don't survive. And so over time, um, the genetic sequences that are passed from parent to offspring come to accumulate information about what functions and works in the environment. So the flow of information is from the environment into the genetic textual record of past natural selection. Okay, excellent. So perhaps you could give us a bit of history on the 19th century natural philosophers' observations of what they termed at the time morphology in animals and how these led Darwin to his theory of evolution. So morphology was actually a term coined by Goethe, the German, um, German poet and playwright, and it was a science of form. And so in the 19th century, um, there was a conflict between functionalists who believed that everything was adapted for some um, functional purpose and then morphologists who uh, were semi-platonic in their philosophical views, that they believed that there were um, archetypical forms. I'll give you some practical examples of this. Um, the morphologists would argue against the functionalists. They would look at a, an ostrich, and an ostrich has wings even though it can't fly. And so its wings are non-functional, but there was something of birdness about an ostrich. Outside my office in the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard, there is a skeleton of a sperm whale, and it still has a pelvis even though it doesn't have hind limbs. And so morphologists would say um, having a pelvis is part of the essential form of being a mammal. Charles Darwin 
was able to explain these odd um, resemblances among species because of common descent. So descent with modification was his term. So the reason why ostriches have wings is that they were descended from ancestors that could fly and use their wings for flight, but they now no longer um, they now no longer fly. And similarly, a whale is descended from animals that used to have hind limbs, and that's why it still retains the remnants of a pelvis. In fact, we've recently discovered that the closest living relatives of whales are the hippopotamus, um, which makes some sense that they're an aquatic four-limbed mammal, and so they share sometime in the past a common ancestor with whales. Wow, fantastic. So was Darwin the first to observe this or he just coalesced this into a unified theory, I guess? Um, the, the facts of morphology, so um, comparative morphology, um, was developed by many scientists, particularly in Germany and France. Um, and there was, as I mentioned, an argument between those people who thought, thought structure was most important and those who thought function was most important, what Darwin was able to do was to reconcile those um, two positions. So he explained um, the existence of adaptation to function through his process of natural selection, and then he explained the morphological resemblances among organisms by their descent from a common ancestor. Okay. So next you write about the impact and reception of Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, in the scientific community. So maybe tell us how this and Dawkins' other work influenced your thinking about genes. So um, many people have told me that the selfish gene changed their life. life. It didn't change mine because much of uh, – I read The Selfish Gene relatively um, late. What I did read – during my PhD um, thesis time was um, Dawkins' second book, The Extended Phenotype, and that did have a, a very major effect on the way I looked at the world. I consider The Extended Phenotype to be a more radical book than The Selfish Gene. So The Selfish Gene looks at how um, individual organisms are um, performing behaviours that favour the propagation of their genes. In the extended phenotype, he starts breaking down the concept of the individual as a coherent whole, that there can be conflicts between different genes within the individual organism, and genes can reach out beyond the organism to have effects in the world, what Dawkins called the extended phenotype. The classic example is that um, beaver dams are part of the um, phenotype, the effects of beaver genes. And so the construction of beaver dams and those modifications of the environment is just as much part of natural selection as the modification of beaver teeth for chewing through bark and through, through wood. Hmm, fascinating. So I, I take it humans' interference in their uh, surrounding environment would be seen as in, in the same way then? We, we have um, modified our environment in very, very profound um, ways. 
um, whether our modifications of the environment are adapted for humans is um, one of the most important questions and problems we're facing today. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense with the way that climate change is going and yeah. stuff like that. All right. Um, well, how does gene inheritance affect characteristics on an individual level? Could you explain how traits we've evolved over eons influence our decision-making in today's context, like for each person? So there, there are a few classic examples of genetic effects. Um, one that's often used nowadays is to talk about the ability to digest milk as adults. Most mammals can only digest lactose, which is the sugar in milk, when they're infants and suckling at the breast. And then their gut ceases to produce that digestive enzyme as adults. And so for a large part of the human population, they don't produce the lactose-breaking down enzyme as adults and so that they um, can't fully digest milk and so it becomes food for bacteria. One way to cope with that is to convert milk into yogurts and cheeses that break down the lactose. But in dairying populations throughout the world, they've, they've evolved a mutant enzyme, which is expressed in an adult and allows um, those adults then to digest milk. And so that's the origin of the milkshake, whatever. And so the ability to digest milk as adults is found in parts of Africa where they raise cattle in the Middle East and in particular in um, Europe um, where there was a strong dairy culture. So this is a very good example, actually, of the environment in which there are cows and there is cow's milk changing the genetic material within um, human inheritance. Other examples of simple examples of this kind are the disease, uh, are the genes that call, cause sickle cell um, anemia in people of African descent. That particular gene is at high frequency in um, African populations because in a single copy it provides resistance against malaria, whereas in two copies it causes a, severe, a serious disease. So those are sort of simple um, cases. The more interesting cases for which we don't fully know the genetic basis are all of those characters that run in families, um, mannerisms and things of that sort that appear to be part of our inheritance. They're not learned. And so I know of numbers of examples of um, relatives who've never grown up together and meet, are reunited at some time, finding all sorts of odd little mannerisms that they share in common. And so those, in some mysterious way, must be encoded in the genetic text. I think that, um, that well, the, the final metaphor of my book is that um, natural selection is a poet and means many things at once. The, um, the effects of genes are selected just like words in a poem are selected for, in terms of the, their effects on the whole, that they can be um, doing many different, a single word 
can be having multiple meanings and doing very different um, things. And so that is the way that our, um, our genomes have evolved as sort of poems from the, the past. Hmm. It's a nice image. So you write about Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments, talking about how our ability to sympathize and imagine other people's perspectives on ourselves and others contributes to our moral faculties. So can you tell us about that? So um, Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments um, bases our, uh, well, what he called the moral sentiments in our ability to put ourselves into other people's um, shoes, so to speak, to see the world from their perspective. And I think we evolved those abilities um, to be able to, when we were interacting with another individual, um, to allow us to anticipate um, the choices they were going to be going to make, to anticipate dangers, but also to anticipate um, possibilities of cooperation. So I think, um, so Adam Smith emphasized the positive aspects of our empathic um, abilities, but I think they're just abilities that we can use for good or for ill, just helping us to understand other people. Um, we model other people, in a sense, on our image of ourselves. And this is connected with evolution because it's a beneficial trait within for each individual as well as communities. Is that how that's connected? Um, so it it evolves primarily for its benefit to the individual, an individual who can understand other individuals can be more successful within the community. But part of being successful is. Um, the ability to cooperate and get the benefits of cooperation. Um, attaining selfish um, benefits are, are easy, but we're all um, aware of the, the costs of so doing. Um, it's interesting what's called the Adam Smith problem. Um, most, most economists emphasize in Adam Smith the invisible hand where everybody is following their own self-interest leads to um, goods and services, food and meat being well supplied. But there is another side to Adam Smith where he looks at the um, problems with competition and he looks at our moral sentiments as ways that allow us to um, live together and to um, cooperate. And I see the same sorts of... Um, problems arising in evolutionary biology, um, that there are short-term incentives for obtaining self selfish benefits, but the big um, untapped benefits are out there are benefits of cooperation. And so part of the drama of evolutionary history is which species and lineages have been good at gaining the benefits of cooperation. Okay. So you consider the fact that if we were to look backward, we could trace a chain of causes or a chain of infinite details that expend, extend back through time to explain how and why each of us, each organism is here today in the form that it takes now. And you point out that there arises from this perspective, 
sort of a seduction to project a narrative on the sequence, to generate a story out of retrospective interpretation and thus provide the chain of causes with meaning. So can you explain what this is about and and what you see as being maybe the gaps in this approach? I'm I'm actually a great um, lover of narrative. I think it's what we have to uh, do that a complete causal explanation of how we came to be here is um, impossible to attain and would be useless. And so in telling um, stories about complex evolutionary processes, we've got to leave leave out some details and we have to um, select the themes that we want to draw draw forward. So I am actually a defender of, um, I think, a narrative approach is inevitable in um, in evolutionary biology. Um, a story needs somewhere to begin. It needs to have um, some things that are accepted, basic premises at the beginning of the story, and then the, the story unfolds. So, my, yeah, I'm, I'm a great lover of narrative. Okay, so I guess the um, the difficulty arises then in the sheer quantity of detail that you might be able to choose to incorporate into your narrative versus what you might leave out. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's well, so uh, much much of what happened in the past, of course, we do not um, know about. That's information that has been lost, and so we try to reconstruct the past by clues that are sitting in genes and genomes, um, trying to understand what um, I talked I talked earlier, for example, about um, the pelvis of whales telling us that at one time whales had hind legs. So a lot of our reconstruction of evolutionary history, it's a, it's a bit like detective work, and a detective is trying to put together a, a story of... Um, you know, solving a murder of who did what to whom. A detective is attempting to um, construct a narrative just as an evolutionary biologist is. Okay. So you talk next about how the non-living world is a repository of unintended information useful for living interpreters, um, which I think is kind of uh, going to your idea of the detective work there. So that characterizes our actions in the world as particular interpretations of that information. So maybe tell us more about what this means and how it can help answer the question of what genes mean in general. So... um... I, I think that um, at one stage in the book, I say, I give, I say, life is interpretation. Um, that um, life is using information in choice, which is my definition of interpretation. So there are there are genes which, if you like, are the specifications for producing organisms like you and me which are then interpreting the the world around them. So the genes are a repository of information from the past, of what has worked in the past. Um, They're instructions for constructing um, bodies like you and I have, but then those bodies need to respond to unanticipated information from the environment and interpret that. And I see 
organisms is responding to um, two sorts of information. So one is, as you started the question with, unintended information from the environment. Um, the sun is shining or it's raining or um, there is um, food over, over the next hill. All sorts of information can be coming in of that sort. And it's unintended because it's just information um, that, is, that is out there to be interpreted. The second sort of information that we need to interpret are what I call texts. And a text is just an interpretation intended to be interpreted. So as I'm speaking to you, uh, this, is a, this is a text um, which I intend you to interpret in some particular um, way. So I see us dealing with those two kinds of information information from the environment and then information from other organisms. And those other organisms often have an agenda. Um, they want us to interpret what they are telling us in particular sorts of ways. So backing off, I don't think that um, what do genes mean? Um, well, what if... What a thing means is it means different things to different interpreters. And so genes are interpreted by a series of proteins. Um, one of them is called DNA polymerase. And DNA polymerase just interprets a genus itself. So that's how genes are copied. It takes one copy of the gene, it processes it, and spits out two copies of the gene. There is a different enzyme complex called RNA polymerase, which interprets a gene as RNA, and then that RNA is a long script. It's in fact called a transcript, so you see the literary um, illusions again. And then that transcript is interpreted by a gigantic machine called a ribosome into a protein, and then that protein um, does functional things within the cell. So the same gene means different things to a DNA polymerase. It's interpreting the gene as itself or to an RNA polymerase, which is interpreting the gene as a messenger RNA, which contains the instructions for a protein. And then that messenger RNA is interpreted by ribosomes as a sequence of amino acids, which give rise to a protein that does a lot of the functional stuff within a cell. But for a, an evolutionary geneticist, the gene can mean something quite different. Um, the gene can be interpreted. So if we see um, the sickle cell um, anemia mutation in an individual, we can infer that that individual had African ancestors. So it depends on um, genes are a source of information but how that information is interpreted, what that information means is different for each interpreter. Okay. And you also address the misconception about meaning being associated with randomness. So this is often characterized by the notion that a million monkeys typing randomly would eventually, given infinite time, type out the works of William Shakespeare or the Bible. And some people seem to think that 
um, that this is the process by which evolution happened or something. So can you explain to us why this image fundamentally misunderstands the creativity of natural selection and how would you characterize the creativity of natural selection? So in fact, the um, image of um, monkeys pounding away at um, typewriters is usually used by critics of Darwinism and of natural selection to um, to argue that this is just so impossible um, that randomness cannot never give rise to um, to meaningful functional um, complex organisms and the mistake they're making is that um, that they're thinking that the creativity is sitting in the randomness whereas the creativity is actually the selection of particular variants that are functional from the randomly generated mutations. So I think the proper understanding of um, of Darwin is that the creativity is actually sitting there in the environment that is choosing some variants rather than others. Um, analogies that have been used are like um, the pruning of a tree, um, is is a creative process, or the carving of a carving of a statue out of marble. Um, these are all selective processes where some things are chosen and other things are discarded. And the important thing about natural selection is that mutations are random around wherever you've got to through past natural selection. So you don't have to type create the works of Shakespeare purely at random. You're dealing with a text which has already been selected to be functional and then looking at minor variants on that text and those variants that improve um, improve the sense of the text are retained and um, other slips of the pen, mutations that decrease adaptation are eliminated. So the creativity is actually in the selection which is a non-random process. It's a process of fitting the organism to the environment, not by the mutation, uh, which is the generation of variation. Okay, so because I'd heard of this image, I didn't realize, it was did it emerge from critics of Darwinism or is is it based in some kind of mathematical principle about... Um, infinite numbers it's um so the the image of the monkeys pounding away at typewriters has always come from um critics of darwinism and they see darwinism as purely being saying that everything has arisen by chance and so it's a mainstay of um of creationists and people who argue for intelligent design today to say that Darwinism um, explains the wonders of living organisms purely by random um, processes, and then they then talk about the absurd probability that monkeys would never um, achieve the work of Shakespeare, or they or they look at the wonders of the human eye and say it's impossible that that comes about by purely random processes. Um, the big gap they have is that they're fixated on the randomness of mutation 
and they really don't understand the incredible creative power of natural selection using things that um, things that are randomly generated, choosing some and not others. I think of another analogy I would use to natural selection, it's like a an artist who constructs sculptures out of found objects. So in the world there are all sorts of um, things that could be used and the creativity is the selection of some but not the others and of how they're put together into um, to, to create some functional whole. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. So let's talk about what makes humans unique as interpreters of meaning. You write that, and I'll quote you here, the evolution of individual learning provided a major advance in interpretive sophistication. So I really like that phrase. How does that influence our experience? And what has this got to do with Jacques Derrida? Okay, so I think it's, so individual learning is not um, unique to humans. Uh, It is... um, even a slug um, can learn some things. And if we're looking at our close relatives and dogs and cats, you know, um, they um, perfect their behaviours by learning and by feedback from the environment within an individual lifetime, whereas natural selection is feedback from the environment in terms of individuals dying or surviving. Individual learning, um, one way it's been expressed that allows our, our ideas to die in our stead. Uh, We have an idea, it doesn't work. We don't have to die, and we just change the ideas. Where I think um, the really, really distinctive um, feature of humans is the evolution of language, because that allows um, information um, to be shared among individuals, and we we can learn from other individuals in ways that um, that slugs and chimpanzees and dogs and cats can't do. And um, that does then bring us to um, theories of language and Jacques Derrida um, has, has some interesting ideas on language. Um, I, I'd come to the context of um, thinking about the genome as a, as a textual record of past um, choices of nature, and then I just went to to look at some of the works of um, Derrida, and I found um, that he was talking about some of the same things as I was doing, but in very, very different different language. So um, he he, uh, talks about how the meaning of a text is continually being uh, reinterpreted, that much of the uh, the meaning is determined by what is not rather than what is sitting in the text. And that's very much similar to um, the process of natural selection, that, uh, that a DNA sequence gains meaning by all of the other sequences that were rejected by natural selection. So that um, it's... Um, Anyway, I, I see some analogies between the two ways of looking at the world that they um, develop um, in, in the book. Um, my initial thought uh, was because um, Derrida talks, um, criticizes what he calls the metaphysics of presence. So he emphasizes um, the importance of what 
isn't there as much as what is there. And so I thought of calling the book From Darwin to Derrida, but never actually mentioning um, Derrida. But I decided that that would be a little too sophisticated. Uh, uh, That's a very subtle joke. Uh, well, yes, too, um, too, too subtle. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, that is what I really appreciate about your book is how you bring evolutionary science into the realm of metaphor and interpretation to show how these seemingly disparate fields of knowledge actually have a lot to say to each other. So can you put maybe into a nutshell, what do you think is the biggest takeaway from your book? Um, I, I think there are two takeaways uh, that, that I would like people to take from the book. One of them is internal to um, biology. And I, as a biology student, was told um, that I shouldn't use teleological language. You shouldn't use anthropomorphism. So the, the model of um, science is a, a model in which questions of meaning, intention, and purpose are not part of um, science. And that works for um, the physical universe fairly well, but it definitely doesn't work for living things, which um, it's obvious as we look around are doing things for, for good reasons. So part of the book is a defense of the use of teleological language within biology. Um, you know, they, think about the criticism against anthropomorphism. Um, we, we as biologists are often told you should think about a dog as a machine and not think about it as being like a human being. But in fact, dogs and human beings are much more similar to each other because they share a lot of evolutionary history than they are to something like a traffic light or even the um, laptop computer we're communicating um, over. So I, I see... Um, so one of the things that I wanted for a scientific organism, um, not for, for a scientific audience to get out of the book, is a justification um, for taking um, purpose in the living world seriously. Another theme of the book for myself was, um, so one projected title of the book before Darwin to Derrida was um, Degrees of Freedom, Unfortunately, it turned out that Daniel Dennett was thinking about writing a book of, called Degrees of Freedom, so I um, graciously said I would find a, a different um, title. And what I mean by Degrees of Freedom is that we have evolved to be free to make choices in a world that has never been seen before. And so it's, it's arguing how um, free will um, can emerge out of a deterministic um, universe. So I'm a compatible, compatibilist on the um, question of free will, that um, we do things for um, physical, biological reasons, but we, it is at us ourselves who are making the decisions because we have evolved to be free. Wonderful. Well, on that note... David, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Uh, but before we do go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? I am actually looking at DNA sequences in great uh, detail, and I'm beginning to think that uh, 
a lot of the information processing is taking place at um, at the at the level of RNA ribonucleic acid. So that is the um, that is the form of nucleic acid that is um, that is transcribed is the term from the DNA genes and then um, is sent out into the into the cell. And the classical genetics that I was brought up in says that RNA was merely a messenger um, to produce the, the proteins um, in ribosomes. I talked about that a little bit earlier. But in fact, the, the so-called messenger RNA, the transcript, um, often has much more um, non-coding sequence, so not specifying protein than specifies the protein. And all of that non-coding sequence has been ignored but parts of it, um, I can find non-coding sequences in humans that are identical to sequences in sharks. So it must be doing, if it's been maintained over all that long time, despite ceaseless mutation, which is changing the sequence, it's got to be doing something important. And so I'm thinking that um, a heck of a lot of what happens in life has been, um, has been missed, that a lot of the information processing and interpretation that's going on in the, the cell is at the level of the RNA molecule. So that's what I'm thinking about at the moment. Wow, that sounds exciting. Um, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. Uh, it was really fun to read your book, and I was really glad to have a chance to chat with you in person about it. Thank you, Carrie. All right, we'll talk again. Bye. Bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with David Haig about his new book, From Darwin to Derrida, Selfish Genes, Social Selves, and the Meanings of Life. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the materials we cover. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynnland, that's C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books in Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books in secularism.